Hey there, my podcast listening friends. Welcome once again to the Every Single Day Missionary Podcast, episode 2,785 and three-eighths and a smidge with an ounce, or also known as 267. So I've always wanted to have like my numbers be up into the thousands, and I'm like, I'm only a 267, a thousand is so far away but like by the time I get to a thousand I will also be like a thousand years old I'll I'll be in my 60s if this podcast gets to a thousand I will be a very old man by the time we ever get to that number I'm not sure we'll ever make it to a thousand I don't know how long this is going to go on but for today we got a thing now before I get into this particular episode I figured out what was the matter with my microphone last time and this is the fact that computers have a mind of their own and so for whatever reason and for, for purposes I do not understand, my computer decided to take the volume of my microphone, which is buried in the innards, the guts of the settings, and pushed it all the way up to the end, which I don't know how it does that, why it did that. I feel like sometimes Apple's like, just, hey, we're going to go ahead and send an update and it's going to mess with something somewhere and you're going to have to figure that out on your own. And so we figured it out. So hopefully today the sound quality, much, much better. It was just so hot last time. That's what I guess they call it in the biz is a hot mic. Uh, It was so hot that uh, it was just kind of tingy, crazy, canny, messy. But today I'm hoping way better. So not the topic of the day at all. No, the topic of the day is something that, uh, you know, one of the things I tend to do, or at least a lot of the topics on the podcast is really born out of my own wrestling, pondering, thinking, cross-pollinating between what's going on in society, what's going on in scripture, theology, you know, Christian experience and expression, and just all of that kind of comes together. Um, And uh, I listen to a lot of different outlets of information. I try to read as much as possible. I try to kind of always know a little bit about a lot of things. I don't know if I know a lot about a little bit of things, but I try to know a little bit about a lot of things. And then from that, you know, just the synapses do their job and information kind of gets rooted around in my brain. And then from that, here you get the podcast, right? So uh, with that, I was thinking about something that I, 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 I've, I've thought about for a while. I've kind of talked about at different intervals, uh, probably in the podcast in disjointed ways. I'm going to see if I can kind of join them all together today. Uh, and it has everything to do with this idea of the fancy word is eschatology, but it's in times theology. And I'm talking predominantly about the American experience. I, I, I think this plays out maybe in different ways in different cultural contexts, but I think in the United States, uh, we're sort of breathing similar air on our end times ideas. And so this is part about eschatology or end times. It's part about phenomenon or uh, we might call it spiritual warfare is probably a little bit more the niche I'm thinking about today. So I'm talking about end times. I'm talking about spiritual warfare. I'm talking about um, sort of Christian responses to cultural developments, Um, maybe a little bit of the tone of... I know this is an overplayed idea of Christian nationalism, but I like a little bit of like, hey, how Christians are responding to the culture wars, right? And and these are linked then to end times ideas and spiritual warfare ideas. Uh, and then how this then kind of is underpinned by the mission of Christ and the gospel and the kingdom and how Satan also has sort of um, a vested interest in end times and spiritual warfare, not because he goes, both of those freak me out, 
but because he says, I can use both of those against the success of the gospel and the kingdom in the American population. And I believe he's doing it pretty effectively. And so he is a fan of end times theology and spiritual warfare theology for reasons that we may not always assume. And so this is kind of an interesting podcast because, again, we're going to talk about how the enemy is really good at co-opting theology to disrupt gospel and to disrupt everyday missionaries. And I actually think that's in part what is happening. And that's where this little Christian nationalism idea comes into. Or maybe to put it a little differently, uh, Christians being overly invested into politics at an emotional level. I don't mean that Christians shouldn't be involved or invested into politics at a practical level, at a voting level, at uh, even leveraging it for missional endeavors level, but where we get a little too passionately connected to it, where we get almost idolatrous when it comes to how politics need to play a role in culture and how we try to use that to deal with issues of spiritual warfare and eschatology or end times theology. Now, that's a big bundled mess and how I think it gets in the way of being everyday missionaries and how it gets in the way of actually um, kind of uh, kind of communicating effectively the authenticity of a more pure gospel within our world. So can I stitch all of that together? I don't know. I'll probably go down in flames terribly trying to do it, but we're going to do our best to try to unpack all this as my little brain can kind of work it out. So Here's the deal. Uh, if you look at the book of James, chapter 2, um, you see that uh, there's this weird thing about, you know, even the demons believe and they tremble, right? And, and I've heard this said from different theologians and pastors and Christian personalities over the course of time that the greatest theologian in the universe is actually the devil, right? Like he's the most skilled theologian. He's got a better handle on scripture than any human being does. He's had a front row seat to the character of God. So he he really is the most knowledgeable one outside of probably the Trinity when it comes to the deepest ideas of truth. And so he understands nuance and subtlety and he knows how to take those ideas and just slightly tweak them to where they work in his favor as opposed to they work against him. And when it comes then to what he seeks to do in the life of uh, believers in any given time, place, whatever else, is he's going to take some of that and he's going to try to twist it just enough to where it sounds very theological, it sounds very biblical, it sounds very clear, but it gets us just off the coordinates of what it is we're most meant to do, right? And and as I've been watching for the last few years, I, I think he's done a really good job of leveraging end times ideas and spiritual warfare ideas in such a way that we think, hey, this is all rooted in a God thing, and I think it's the enemy saying, no, I'm just trying to get you all steered off of what the real God thing is. And in the name of God, you're not doing God things. And that's the best place for him to have us at, right? This is where uh, the church loses power and steam and influence and and gospel traction in any given society at any given time. And, and I believe firmly, I mean, this is just, again, it's my opinion. You are listening to this podcast. You can turn it off. But my opinion is that Christianity has lost influence because it hasn't been Christ-like and that it's trying to regain influence at the cost of being Christ-like. I, I, I really do think that. I, I think um, we, we think the road to reestablishing Christianity within our society 
is in this kind of culture wars model, which it's been true my whole adult Christian life. I've watched this unfold and and I, I see it. I don't know if I'm going to say it's accelerating, but I see a more brazen form of it, a, a, a deeper willingness to make alliances with clearly less than um, Christ-centric character-oriented people, right? To try to get this Christian nation reestablishment thing going on, right? So so kind of in light of that then, like how does this play out in these two spheres, spiritual warfare and in times ideas? Well, because Christians by and large in our culture have an in times view that we would call premillennialism and in that dispensational premillennialism. So you get a little bit of a theology lesson here for just a second. So Historically, the church has had different views about end times, but since roughly the mid-1800s, there's been this idea of dispensational theology that's been bolted to premillennialism. Premillennialism goes further back than that. Dispensationalism, pretty new idea in the stream of theological thought. And to make it simple, that's the Left Behind series, all right? That's the the Tim LaHaye, you know, like there's this rapture event, seven years of tribulation, then Jesus returns, and then there's this thousand-year millennial kingdom. That seven years, that final cataclysmic thing, uh, a rise of the Antichrist, a rise of the false prophet, a rise of the one world nation government thing, all of that is this premillennial theology. Right, And so it's been very popularized since the 70s, roughly, with Hal Lindsey. Before that, it was popularized because it was included into the uh, Schofield Reference Bible. This goes back to a man named Darby, kind of roughly in the mid-1800s. Uh, his ideas were then grabbed by Schofield. Schofield put it into one of the first real study Bibles. That ended up getting populated into seminaries throughout the United States and the UK. And from that, it just became a prominent theological idea. It's not globally as prominent, and it is not historically prominent, but it is culturally prominent for us today. And therefore, from that, there's a lot of speculation that goes into premillennial theology. Uh, a lot of uh, very exotic charts and diagrams and kind of, it feels like this weird geometry of theology to kind of make all these different things fit. And then with that, there is this heightened sense of uh, what is going on in the world today is all like these... Uh, it, it's like the Da Vinci Code, you know? It's like, oh, we got to figure out all of the symbols and all of the signs and all of the different intricacies in here that are all bringing together this one world government and bringing into place the opportunity for the rise of an Antichrist. And with that, there is the kind of a, a conspiracy behind the scenes, right? That is driving the world toward this... Uh, imminent seven years of tribulation where the Antichrist tries to forge peace throughout the world, but it's really just a power grab for him to try to dominate the world and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then, of course, the church will get raptured before that, unless you're kind of a mid-trib, post-trib rapture person, then the rapture is a little deeper into the seven years. But all of this sets a tone within the American Christian psyche that says there are wheels that are turning behind the scenes that we don't know and therefore, it gives credibility to our sense of suspicion of conspiracy, 
right? So we don't know for sure. We're guessing, but we go, you know what? Because our eschatology says all these wheels are in motion behind the scenes and the devil is spinning all of those wheels. Uh, the devil is alive and well. He's pulling the strings of government. He's pulling the strings of finance. He's pulling the strings of different global conflict, all to bring it to a place where he can get the power grab with his antichrist, right? So we get real uh, suspicious then of government. And we get really suspicious of governmental organizations and systems. And we look with kind of like a, like a kind of a side eye at it, you know, like, oh, I know what's really going on here. And we start to assume that our suspicions are fact, our suspicions are true. And our suspicions, uh, they cause us to then look at these entities and the people that are over those entities. And we go, they're not to be trusted right? Because they're just puppets of the enemy, in essence. This then kind of cycles into the spiritual warfare element where we go, uh, there are principalities and powers. And Paul writes about this, like in Ephesians chapter six. And these principalities and powers, these demonic forces are the entities that reside behind the human entities that are all kind of scattered throughout the world. They are um, somehow able to control them, to guide them, to, uh, you know, kind of influence their thinking, their perceptions or whatever else. Because again, like Paul says in Ephesians 2, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so we look at that and we go, for all of that, all these systems behind the veil of our material world, there's this immaterial world where Satan has a ton of control. He's dominating the environment. And therefore, we as believers need to be aware. We need to have our eyes wide open. We need to be awake. We need to realize that we're people of the day and we see all of this clearly because a lost world is blind and can't see it clearly. This is kind of the architecture that's been put together for the last, now, since the seventies, certainly like that's really where a lot of this end time stuff came into play. And then also a lot of spiritual warfare kind of theology ramped up and has come into play. Now, the thing I want to say about both in times or eschatology and spiritual warfare is when you scour the Bible, right? To, to, to really build a, a functional theology of this, we don't have a lot to land on really concretely. It reminds me a little bit of like Jurassic Park, you know, or in the very first one before it just all got ridiculous. Uh, but in the very first one, they said, you know what, the way we're making these kind of uh, dino DNA you know, kind of chains is we're taking frog DNA and putting it into the dino DNA where there's missing gaps. And so we're filling in the gaps with some stuff. So there's real stuff and there's gap stuff. We've got to fill in the gap stuff to make the full real stuff. And when it comes to the theology of the end of the world, or it comes to the theology of uh, spiritual warfare, there are a lot of gaps that we tend to fill in with speculation, assumption, um, our own cynicism, whatever else, and then we codify it. We say, this is the truth now. All of this represents an accurate portrait of things that we cannot see, and it represents an accurate portrait of things the Bible doesn't fully unpack, right? But we start to think in those ways. And then, like I said, we become suspicious, we become protective, we become defensive, we become um, fearful of the environment. And in light of that, I think the devil goes, yes. Yes, finally, right? Because what he knows is then we will abandon the tools of the kingdom and the tools of the gospel. And instead, we'll take up tools where we kind of think, 
well, you got to fight fire with fire, right? And and we have to think not in terms of a peaceful Messiah who uh, advocates that meekness is what inherits the earth. We go, no, it's fierceness in the face of a battle that's a spiritual warfare battle, and it's fierceness in the face of an impending doom that's coming to the world because of an antichrist. And so we start to think that our job, instead of being gospel communicators and kingdom embodiers, we start thinking, no, the job is to fight fire with fire, is to realize that if Satan is the puppeteer behind all these politicians and political structures and governmental entities, we need to replace those politicians and those entities with our people to fight their people. And therefore we get drawn into not being missionaries, but into being soldiers. And not into being people who embody a Christ-likeness, but rather in the name of Christ, we embody a very human likeness to kind of fight the battle. And so we then forget Paul's whole point on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. Because when he goes there, where a lot of people run, we go, that's right, we've got to have this shield and this helmet and the sword and all this stuff. And we forget his, 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 his information that's there is he's like, hey, I want you to live out an authentic Christ-centric missionary life because, yes, there is an enemy, but you're not to go fight that enemy And if anything, you want to really fight that enemy? He's like, remember that people are not your enemy. People are your potential brother and sister yet to be reached. People are the people you're called to love, to pray for, to do good to, to be supportive of, to come alongside. But our dilemma is we start to go, nope, we've sided it all up. And just again, to be clear, because I'm I'm dealing in the evangelical world. I'm an evangelical pastor in an evangelical church. What we vilify is the left then. We go, the problem is the woke crowd. The problem is AOC. The problem is Joe Biden. The problem is liberal Hollywood. The problem is, you know, what it is, Rupert Murdoch. Well, some people say he's a hero. It just depends on who you are, I guess. Uh, or it's George Soros or, you know, like the, the cast of characters that we then billify and say they need to be resisted. They need to be fought uh, is, is long. And, and we're no longer thinking like a missionary to them. We're thinking like, again, a, a warrior, a soldier against them, right? And, and this is, again, I'm banging this drum all the time in this podcast, but I can't bang it enough because I continue to see it elevate, right? And then at the same time, we go, therefore, if you're going to fight those things, you need to find a thug, to fight these thugs. And so then we look for our heroes, not that we go really embody the depth of Christ, right? Who are the turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love their enemy types, right? That that look at the Beatitudes and they go, man, persecution is where there is blessing. Persecution is where there's joy. We go, we got to find the person that resists persecution. We got to find a persecutor to fight our persecutors. We've got to find a warrior that says, you know what? Wokeness is of the devil and we're going to go fight those who are woke and we're going to suppress those who are woke and we're going to beat those who are woke. And we're not doing gospel stuff. And the devil loves it. He loves it. He's like, yes, that's right, man. You got to see me working behind the scenes. You got to see me pulling the strings. And then you got to go fight the people who are at the end of those strings. Because if you actually reach them for Jesus, you'll change the world. But if you just fight them in the name of Jesus, the world will stay just as it is. In conflict, in combat, absent of love, filled with hate, filled with vengeance, filled with rage, filled with, with saying, I got to defend and, 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 and use human means to accomplish human goals. And man, the enemy's just like, this is the best ever. 
And he's sitting there just like eating popcorn and drinking soda. And he's like, keep this going, Christians. This is so great. Yes. Forget that you're supposed to love those people. Start to resent those people. Start to fear those people. Start to just oppose those people. Don't embody your own true kingdom ethics. Get enraged about the absence of ethics. Be really angry about others' bad ethics because that just highlights our own bad ethics, right? This is where I go. This is the great trap. It's the great trap. And so don't think because you're in tune with spiritual warfare or you've really studied end times theology that you're doing God a favor because all of that is in there right? Very sparse, very loose. I mean, again, if, if, if we all think we agree on revelation, just start looking around. We don't ag- agree on the book of revelation, like massively, like it's incredible how much Christians do not agree on the end of the world. We, we there, there's so much that are just, man, depends on the crowd you're talking to. And again, if you go, no, it's seven years of tribulation, that whole thing, that is the most biblical. It's the least popular in the world and in the history of Christianity. So again, let's not get into our own little time, place, and tribe and go, nope, we've figured out the mysteries of everything. We're the smartest ones on the block. We're not. And the reason is we're not is because God just didn't make all of this that clear. It's clear enough to know that, you know what? Jesus is coming again. He's bringing a new heaven, a new earth. And in the meantime, we're meant to do some stuff while we're here. And the reason we have these passages that are in the Bible is not so we become militant against the world, but we realize, oh, my job is to bring Jesus and his life and his love and his truth to the world through what I do, right? that I embody the everyday missionary spirit. And the way that you really disrupt the works of the devil, as the New Testament likes to to talk about it, is you act like Jesus. You act like Jesus. Like wherever Jesus set foot, right, the enemy was freaked out. And he, he was freaked out because of what Jesus displayed, right? So John 10.10, one of my favorites, right? The enemy comes to kill, steal, and to destroy. But Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly. Like everywhere Jesus stepped, he was offering life. And he was offering life to broken people, hurting people, uh, sinful people, destructive people, disruptive people. Like that's kind of what he did. And when he was then opposed by those types of people, you know what he did? He still was generous. He was still gracious. He still gave himself for a world that rejected him, right? So the posture of Christ is this posture of undoing what the world does in otherworldly ways. Like that, that was his method. That's why even when he's there with, with Pilate, right? And, and, and Pilate's like, so you're a king, huh? So what are you going to do, King Jesus? And Jesus is like, man, you know what, dude? Listen, if I wanted to, I could call down like an entire heaven army thing and obliterate. But that's not how I roll because that's not the kind of king I am. That's not the kind of kingdom I'm establishing. Those aren't the kinds of people I'm building. Right? I'm building a people who will bring grace to gracelessness. There will be love to lovelessness. Right, There will be generosity and compassion in the face of persecution and hostility and resistance. Who, when they're pressed, take a knee and say, you know what? Hey, man, God is my witness. I am here to, even in my suffering, model that he is better and his way of facing hardship is better than if I decide I just need to fight fire with fire. I need to go to battle here. I need to suddenly defend myself and go after you because you're going after me. That's just not Christ-centric. 
It's not. I know it's popular. I know it's very American because we're very individualized, right? We're very much like, no, I can defend myself. I have my rights. I have all of this stuff. We get really privileged. And I hear that even in our Christian expression. Like, hey, what about our religious liberties? I'm like, I don't know. God didn't give that to us. This idea that they're endowed by God, right? No, they're not. There's nothing in the scripture I find where we have religious liberties. We have religious responsibilities. Yes, we're supposed to live our faith. But he doesn't say, oh, and by the way, you're allowed to be protected by government policy to express your faith. In fact, he says the opposite. He's like, government will probably stand in your way. And you know what you get to do when they do? You love them. You do good to them. You pray for them because that's my kingdom. In fact, I believe the kingdom is best shown when we can do that in the face of opposition. Instead of sounding like victims about woke culture and against the left and everything else. And again, you know, this is, again, this is, this is the pine that I stand on and start to just pound my fist, right? I'm like, I, I think we've had all of these opportunities to really show Jesus. And instead, in the name of Christ, we've shown worldliness. And that's an easy thing to do. The history of Christianity is replete with that, right? Like, I mean, the, the pinnacle of that is like what you see with the Catholic Church in Europe through much of the, like the, the dark ages or the middle ages or whatever else, where again, they had all the power, all the control. And in the name of Christ, they were Christless. And my, my, my always deep concern is that we will justify our, our militancy. We will justify our coldness to, to what we perceive to be the opposite of us, right? Because that's kind of what this is too. We go like, hey, we've we've kind of mastered what Christianity is, and and these people are not that, and 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 therefore we kind of set ourselves against them instead of setting ourselves out there for them. Uh, we we again see there's this need to just kind of um, call out to uh, highlight their failures, their flaws, to sound like we've got it more figured out, to sound kind of judgmental in the process of that, um, and and. I just look and I go, there's nothing appealing to me about that. Like if I'm on that side of the equation, right, am I going to look and go, man, these people, they care about my life. They, they, they care about me, even though we disagree. They really seem to care about me. They're really, really generous toward me, even when I'm nasty to them. They're really nice to me, you know, like what a mind boggling thing, you know, like that's the disruptor that I think changes the world. But if that's not our tone, and we're having a great deal of glee taking our thug and sending our thug to fight their thug. This is reminiscent of how um, exorcism occurred in kind of the first century setting outside of like Jesus showing up, right? So in that world, they had different ways they would deal with, quote, demonic uh, kind of um, influence on in a person's life. So if somebody was actually possessed, they'd say, well, sometimes the only way you can drive out this demon in a person is you got to go find a bigger demon to drive out the little demon. And from that, you get the big one to convince the little one to split, or he's going to punch him or, you know, kind of smash him or whatever demons do. I don't know. And the little one would leave and the person would be freed, right? That was the idea. And I almost think that like the devil's like, that was the best plan. Let's stick with that. So we look for our bigger demons to fight our little demons Instead of saying, how does Christ um, inform a community of faith to bring transformation in ways unlike anything the world would ever do? Because when I read through the Gospels, I see Jesus repeatedly doing that. Like, I see Jesus bringing this upside down and backwards narrative to bear on real world environments. And my always deep concern is that we go, bullcrap. 
that doesn't really work. Like, oh, I love to memorize those verses. Let's do a Bible study around that. Let's do a deep dive into the Greek of the Sermon on the Mount. But it doesn't work in the real world. You know, like, like that's always my, my deepest concern that there is a lot of Bible study, but there's not a lot of implementation of a Christ likeness that the world desperately needs to see. And so increasingly people leave the church, increasingly people deconstruct, uh, increasingly people see the church as a threat and a danger. And I go, I kind of get it. Like, it'd be one thing if it was just completely made up. If we didn't sound threatening or we didn't sound dangerous or we didn't sound fighty or we didn't sound warfare oriented, but we kind of do, right? And we do admit like, hey, we want to put people in place that topple your ideologies, your thoughts, your policies, whatever else. And and again, I, that to me is still a fire with fire thing, right? That, that, that still has that thing. So we don't quite inhabit the upside down and backwards nature of the message of the kingdom, but it's like kingdom plus practicality, you know, principles sort of, but let's be honest, some of those principles just don't work, right? Reminds me of when um, one of the Trump sons was speaking at a, a an event that was a Christian oriented event. And he says, hey, man, here's the bottom line. Turning the other cheek just doesn't work anymore. And people are like, yeah, that's right. Turning the other cheek just doesn't work in American population anymore. And I'm like, that's what I mean. You know, this is my concern. We go, that's naive. You can't turn the other cheek to these woke wingnuts and liberals that want to take your way of life. And I'm like, and then the devil goes, yeah, that's right. It doesn't work. You guys run with what works. Run with what works. Now, here's the thing. It can work for a season. Authoritarian Christianity can work. Again, ask the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages in Europe. It works, but it doesn't work with Christ. It works like all authoritarianism can work. It works like all human will overturning others' human will can work. If you have enough leverage and enough will, you can make it work, but it doesn't last. And it certainly doesn't honor Christ. And so this is where I always want us to think clear, right? I'm not saying in all of this, and hopefully you've stuck with it to the end, but I'm not saying in all of this that there isn't spiritual warfare. I'm not saying in all of this there isn't some end times um, conclusion that will come to bear on the planet. You know, again, everybody has differences of opinion on how that's going to come and what that's going to look like and everything else. My thing is don't let all of that justify our absence of actually being like kingdom people that are different than the world. Don't put your faith in the world systems to topple other world systems. Don't be more passionate about your candidate. Don't be more passionate about your political ideology. Don't be more passionate about your economic kind of solution than you are about the idea that if we live like Jesus, authentically, lovingly, truthfully, that that has the most potential to change the world. That that is the clearest thing. And then pin down to that. Like, what does Jesus' likeness look like in my everyday space? So how, how can I, again, do this at work and at the PTA and at the gym and at the grocery store and with my friends? And, and how can I do that with the people that are my critics? And if somebody says something snarky to me on social media or in the community or whatever, else, how can I go the extra mile to be utterly different instead of being like, they're my problem, they're my my enemy. They're a jerk. They're an idiot. Whatever names you want to pick in your head or say out loud, whatever. Like, how do I do this different? Because Jesus left us a model in which to live out. If you read first Peter, that's exactly what he talks about. He's like the cross itself is an example for us to follow in all that we do. 
And I believe if we can really embrace that, own what it means to really go like every day, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to strive. I'm going to, I'm going to crucify myself daily, as Paul says, and I'm going to seek to live like Jesus. Like, how would Jesus respond to this? What did he say in the red letters of my Bible? What were the demonstrations in the black letters of the Gospels where I see him in action? What did he do? I'm going to do that. Otherwise, I'm just feeding the enemy exactly what he wants. And in the name of Christ, being Christless. And that's the great danger. And that's what he loves. And that's why I think he loves end times. And that's why I think he likes spiritual warfare. He leverages it all the time, all the time, right? And the more we're caught up in that, the more we justify our actions through that, the more he just claps, cheers, keeps chomping his popcorn and sipping his soda, man. He's like, this is the best. We're going to protract this out for as long as possible. So if the church is to be really on track, really on mission, see true revival, it's not through changing systems, True revival comes through living out Jesus to persons and then being compelled by what they see and they come into that same relationship and they want to be like him and live like him and love like him. And from that, they become like what we're trying to be, which is what? What this podcast is all about. It's all about becoming everyday missionaries.